This is Caught in the Act with Tim Clark. Welcome back. Stuart Sinclair Gorham is a truly terrible, horrible, no good, very bad human being. In fact, he might be Western Australia's most dangerous man. And if you were ever in a position to ask him, which would not be a position you would ever want to be in, he would also eagerly admit that himself. Gorham is now 54 years old. He proudly boasts that only 100 days have been spent in the community in the past 33 of those years. That time inside has been for despicable crimes, mostly sexual violence against young men, the last of which was just 12 years old. Gorham also insists the rest of his days on earth should be spent locked up. If they are not, he has told numerous experts he will rape and kill at the very first opportunity he gets, even laying out a plan to ambush and then torture in the prison car park. This week on Court in the Act, we will outline the hideous history of Stuart Gorham, which is so bad that even he says he should never be free again. And we will also explore the controversial and continuing debate over detaining people after their sentences are served and whether a balance is being struck between protecting the public and punishing beyond the pale. And just a warning before we begin, this episode obviously contains details of sexual assault, child sexual assault and other themes that might be distressing. So please take that into account if you want to continue listening. Joining me for all of that is a friend of the podcast and one of WA's most recognisable legal minds and voices, Tom Percy, KC. Tom, thanks again for joining us. Yeah, good morning, Tim. How are you? I'm very well, mate. Very well. So, as Stuart Gorham tells his own personal history, he was aged just 10 when he was removed from his family for burning down a house and then attempting to kill a man he met on the street. After being transferred to a boarding school, he then says he tried to stab the principal before being introduced to heroin by his father, aged 13. These, obviously, are unimaginable claims. They might well be entirely fictional ones. But after some of the other crimes Gorham has committed and admitted to over the years, that early life cannot quite be discounted. As an adult, Gorham has been convicted of 17 serious offences, the first of which happened in 1988, when he was just 19, in Melbourne. His victims were just 16. The first headbutted more than a dozen times and thrown against a window. The second lured away from his friends, bashed, strangled, sexually assaulted and then tangled up in barbed wire fence as he tried to escape. For that, Gorham got 18 months in a youth training centre. Less than two years later, in late 1990, Gorham was in Perth, in a hostel and apparently under little supervision. That was why he was able to befriend a 17-year-old resident with the promise of wine and a lesson on how to survive on the streets. After being lured to a park, the teenager was punched unconscious, 
and then raped in a toilet block. As the victim came to, he was knocked out again and then again. This time, WA's Supreme Court jailed Gorham for five and a half years. Tom, in those years and for several years after, the courts had uh, fewer options in dealing with serious repeat offenders. I think it's probably fair to say. I think that's so. I mean, uh, for many years, we uh, just live with the concept of people doing their time, either being paroled or doing their full time and then getting out on the streets. And, uh, you know, over time, it appeared that there needed to be some more uh, supervisory functions for the courts to perform, uh, making an assessment of people who were scheduled to be released and just making sure that they were going to be safe or they didn't need further conditions when they were released. Now, Mm. that wasn't a mechanism that was open to the courts in days gone by. Mm. But uh, I I can't see that there's any real problem with that. No. And and also, sort of... In, in bygone years, the maximum sentences were also generally less, meaning um, sentencings overall were lower. But uh, on the flip side, for the most serious, judges did have the option of an indefinite jail term um, for crimes other than murder. Well, that's right. They uh, did have the power to uh, put a uh, non-finite sentence on people, but it was very rarely Mm. used and I think it uh, met with the disapproval of the High Court on more than one occasion. Mm. Uh, So it was not something that you certainly... I've never had anyone get what we used to refer to as the key, as in throwing away the key. And uh, that was actually the most feared thing in prisons, you know, that someone might one day get the key because... uh, do that. I'm not sure that there are anyone, there is anyone in jail now who's subject to that regime. Well, yeah, I can only think of one um, in, in recent times, um, which was a, a particularly um, savage murder of um, some children and uh, and a mother-in-law that was handed the indefinite sort of life term um, on top of the actual life term that you get for murder. But, I mean, quite famously, uh, the Claremont serial was it was asked for um, that he would get the indefinite life term, but um, Justice Hall turned that down. So I suppose that shows even now, I mean, probably, you know, even more now, um, how how rare it is for someone to be to be uh, imprisoned for the rest of their natural life. Yeah, Look, I think it's more it's more common in the eastern states. Mm. You quite often get uh, people who are jailed without any prospect of parole, particularly in New South Wales. Uh, but we don't see it very often here. Why do you think that is? The, the judges tougher on crime in 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 the uh, on the eastern seaboard, Tom. Well, I think they have more specific legislation yeah. where that where it allows that to happen. But uh, I know in the case of the Greenough killer, uh, Mitchell, mm. um, he he went to the High Court after being. Uh, handed a never-to-be-released sentence, and he won that. And the court was of the view that, uh, look, the people who uh, should make that decision, not us, will be dead and gone by the time this all comes up. And he may well be a completely different person. It's not to say he will be, but his case should be uh, determined by people in the future at the relevant time rather than someone 30, 40 years uh, in the past. Mm. And I know uh, me and V have had this debate on a couple of occasions. There are cases that are de facto indefinite terms, and you've spoken public about, about one of those, um, Catherine Burney, who, uh, although she has long since um, served her sentence, 
will, practically speaking, probably never be released because, as you've said to me before, which Attorney General is ever going to put their signature to that? Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, just because you've got a uh, you've got a non-parole period, it doesn't mean you're going to get out. Uh, if someone says, oh, 22-year minimum, and you hear people say that on the news, you know, he will serve 22 years before he's eligible for parole. Well, that's just a, a fanciful, aspirational figure for the bloke to think about. But uh, no guarantee at all he's going to get out after that life. means they can, all things being equal. If necessary, keep him there for life. Mm. Well, in January 1999, Gorham was on the streets again, and that's when he struck again with another victim, this time aged 30, a fellow resident at a rehab centre. The pair had snuck out to buy a couple of flagons of sherry. They got them stashed and then later went back to get trashed. As they did, Gorham thought his new friend was getting cheeky. So he bashed him so hard he knocked him out and broke his jaw. Another five and a half year stretch. And then in 2004, on the streets again, Gorham's escalation intensified. By this time, he is 34. The young boy he comes across on the bike was just 12. After they walked to a liquor store, Gorham bought the booze and then told the tale, which allowed him to separate that 12-year-old from his friends and get him to his home. And that's where the nightmare began. It happened lunchtime Saturday. Police will allege the 35-year-old managed to lure his 12-year-old victim away from these shops in Willoughby by saying he was new to the area and had lost his way, offering $100 to whoever could lead him home. It's alleged the man then locked his child victim in this house and forced him to perform sexual acts. At one stage, the man held a knife to the boy's throat and threatened to kill him. After more than five hours, the boy managed to run home. His mother phoned police. The door was locked, padlocked in fact, and a knife produced. The threats began for the boy to strip and shower. He was told by Gorham he had fallen into his web. And, like a spider, maybe a rock spider, with a fly, the terrified boy was toyed with, tortured and repeatedly sexually assaulted. Eventually... Almost miraculously, he was let go, and Gorham was soon locked up, having only been out of prison for one month before preying on that innocent, unsuspecting victim. Tom, going back to the early 2000s, what were the supervision re regimes like surrounding sort of serious offenders compared to now? Well, going back to like the 70s and 80s when I first started practice, uh, there were none. Uh, and uh, when you did your time, you got out. Unfortunately, the problem was, as it still is, is that there's no real halfway houses here for people who get out. Mm -hmm. uh, they go straight out into the mainstream community, and particularly ones who are denied parole. At least if you if they're granted parole, sure, they get out a bit, a, a bit earlier, and that sits uneasily with some people. It sounds like they're getting out of it easy. But at least they're subject to supervision. And for a couple of years, you know, the worst of it can perhaps be managed. But people who get out, who do their full term, no parole, get out. They come and live right next door to you, completely unsupervised. And that, that was sometimes a problem. Mm. Now, I don't say it was a problem to the extent that crime is in the community these days. I mean, we've got a lot of other things operating now, methamphetamine mm. and, uh, you know, a generation or two of, of very bad parenting 
and education and things like that, which mm -hmm. has contributed towards the crime rate. Don't, don't, I'm not saying people weren't much better intrinsically in those days, but uh, we did seem to have a lot less crime, and we had lost. Uh, we didn't have the same sort of harshness of laws either. Mm -hmm. So, it's a bit of an interesting dichotomy. But uh, it came a time, I think, uh, when Parliament had to say, well, we need something more than parole. We need to deal with people who are going to get out and, and they're not going to be on parole. We need a, a judge to have another look at them. Sure, the sentencing judge tailored a sentence to what he thought was he or she thought was uh, appropriate for the circumstances. But the reports from the internal prison people, the counsellors, psychiatrists, the prison authorities, indicate that this uh, man or woman is not really fit for release. So there had to be a mechanism yep. whereby that occurred, and that's where we have the Dangerous Sexual Offenders Act and now the Dangerous Offenders Act. Mm. And there are several cases that are cited for um, instigating those, um, those uh, originally the Dangerous Sex Offender laws, which we'll come to in a minute. Um, from reading back in the archives, Gorham was certainly one of those because there was public outrage when it was discovered, A, how long he'd been out of prison before he offended again, B, obviously the nature of the crime against the child, but C, the fact that he'd been placed basically, right, as you say, right back in the heart of a community with apparently little or, or, or no proper supervision and monitoring. Yeah, well, look, I often ask people who say to me, why should this guy get out early? Why? And they read something in the, why should he get out early? Why give him parole? Mm. The answer is, all right, well, let's imagine he's going to go and live next door to you. Would you rather him be on parole or would you prefer him to be scot-free? Because mm. sooner or later, they're going to get out. Mm. Yeah. And that is always, I mean, 98% of the sentencings that I attend, in, certainly in district court, they always say that. Um, parole is almost never um, opposed by prosecutors who are, you know, obviously trying to send people away, um, because, as you say, uh, the the option, the other option is nothing. Um, no monitoring. Settle them out a bit, bit early under supervision, and then just give them free reign to go out and roam the streets, completely unfettered basis. But I think the dangerous sex offender legislation achieves its purpose. It's harsh. And sometimes I think it just sets people up for a fall. I mean, when they have like no alcohol conditions, mm -hmm. can't go to licensed premises, all of those sort of things. Some of those are excessive. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, people just can't comply. I'm sure I couldn't comply with half of the conditions that uh, those guys get released on. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the community outrage that I was just about to ask you about, I mean, we see it quite a lot when they're – people like me report on on these sort of dangerous offenders being released and you know it's a flippant throwaway line usually at the end of the story there's 54 conditions or whatever but if you actually read through them some of them are no internet no phone uh, you know no you've got you've got to report any new uh, relationships whether whether they be sexual or not to your cco i mean they can be quite harsh and i often often and you've probably often made those arguments well you're setting this offender up to fail because it's almost impossible to comply yeah luckily i don't get asked to go down and do many <laughs> of those but on the occasions that i have I've, i have found them the conditions to be oppressive uh and unnecessary. Um, if someone set their mind to reoffending when they get out, and they've been in prison by then for a long time, then they'll offend anyway, and it doesn't really matter because they know what prison's like. They know the risks they're taking. If they generally want to stay out, they'll stay out of trouble of their own volition. Mm. No conditions imposed by a Supreme Court judge are really going to assist in that in that regard. Mm. And 
community outrage in another sense. I mean, over your years of practice, do you feel, I mean, and, and judges are all, always, and Supreme Court judges in, in particular, are always supposed to be, you know, immune to the to the uh, the vagaries of, of, of the internet and social media and all that. But do you think as humans, they it's impossible for them to sometimes ignore those headlines when it comes to either making a decision to release or making the decision on how long to lock up for? An old judge once said to me when I was leading a line of questioning, he said, Mr. Percy, we judges are not made of stone. Mm. And that's true. Um, they are susceptible. And when you go down a case where you've got some degree of high moral ground or the person's not an entirely bad person, your chances of being acquitted or getting a better result are far better than when the person is actually an ogre. Irrespective of the crime, you can separate the crime from the person. If the person is a genuinely bad person, your chances of getting off are very remote, irrespective of the type of evidence there is. Similarly, on appeal, you know, judges, I think, are susceptible, at least subconsciously, to what the people will think, how this is going to be reported in the paper, what it will be like on TV. And I think uh, if, they, if they know that this is going to be a cause celeb for some time to come, and there's a fair chance that they'll be pilloried, for not making a decision which is in accordance with the public standards rather than in accordance with the law, that must be a matter that plays on their mind. Mm. I've yet to find one judge who will ever admit that to me, even <laughs> privately, mm. but I suspect it's true. Mm. Well, in this case of Stuart Gorham, he swiftly admitted he was the man who had inflicted that sadistic six-hour attack on that schoolboy. Seven counts of aggravated rape, three of indecent dealing, two threats to kill, assault and kidnap. And prosecutor Carmel Barbagallo urged the court and the judge to lock Gorham up for life. Incredibly, Gorham himself agreed, or at least did not oppose that application. And he told a psychiatrist he knew he was a dangerous person and that jail was one of his favourite places because he could easily get sex and drugs in there. He asks your honour to lock him up for as long as possible. His lawyer, Laurie Levy, told the court. But despite all those opinions and all the community outrage and also conceding no treatment existed for Gorham's particular set of sick skills, Judge Philip Eaton declined to make the ultimate call to jail forever or even come near to the maximum of 20 years. Judge Eaton reached a term of 14 and a half years while stating the state, if it wish, could later apply to have his release blocked under WA's Dangerous Sexual Offenders Act. There's no way he should be released back into the community, Prosecutor Barbara Gallo confirmed. So we will look at it again in 13 years and six months. Tom, that dangerous sex offenders laws were brought in for offenders, precisely like Gorham, with the view of considering whether they should be released after their sentence is finished. And probably going to be an unpopular opinion and it is mine but it is also borne out by statistics those dso laws largely worked in terms of protecting the public from serious reoffending. would you agree with that 
Uh, not really. I, I think that uh, they're a step in the right direction, mm. but whether they work is another question, whether they'd work on someone like Gorham if he ever got out. Mm. And they don't work for blokes like that. Mm. And uh, there are some people that I know people I've acted for who I have really grave doubts about uh, whether or not they, they will be effective. I think they're popular. It shows the, uh, shows the community that the government and the courts are doing something to protect them. But if someone's minded to reoffend, uh, they just will. And they, if they're minded to fool parole authorities and, and get released or they can pull one over a judge by uh, showing all the intents and purposes of being uh, re rehabilitated and manage to get out all by a bit on conditions, they'll reoffend if they want to. There's no guarantees. And I think that's why even though someone like uh, you know, Gorham is sui generis, as we say in the law, in a category of his own, yeah. and I think you'd probably agree, yeah. he really is in a category of his own. Uh, I've never heard submissions like that made before. You know, you're right, he wants to be locked up for as long as possible. Mm. I mean, that just is bizarre. <laughs> Um, and I think uh, the benefit of those dangerous sex offender laws is this, is that you can have a look at the person 13 and a half years down the track, as someone will do with Gorham. It's a bit hard for a judge to say, sitting there in 2000, what he's going to be like in 2014, yeah. or sitting there today, what he's going to be like in 2050. So I think it's a good idea to have a judge have a look at him uh, at the time, uh, with access to all the reports and the information uh, that they have uh, from the prison authorities and make an assessment then. If it, if it indicates that uh, he's just not um, suitable for release, even with the most stringent conditions, they can say, we'll come back in two years and we'll have another look. Yeah. I think that's fair enough. Yeah. And you, and you said it there. I mean, uh, you see it very rarely in the courts, but it's very rare that, that someone will sit in the dock and say, I don't want to get out. I, I, you know, I need more time inside to, to to get better or you know to improve myself. But I mean, it does happen. Have have you had clients give you those instructions in the past? No, no, no I never had anything like that. The, the, what I've sometimes had is saying, look, I don't want parole. Don't make an application for parole. Right. So well, you'll get it two two years earlier. I don't want it because. Being on parole is a nightmare. I only reoffend and they put me back in. I want to go, I want to have a clean slate when I get out. I'll do the extra two years. So I've had people often say that to me. And even when they're in jail, if a judge makes an order for parole, some of them say, Look, I don't want parole. Um, they don't make an application to the parole board. They just uh, do their time. And when they get out, they feel liberated. A lot of people, when they get out and they're on parole, they feel as though it's a, an enormous restriction on them and you're not being able to like go to a hotel or mix with a group of friends who might have convictions and things like that. Mm. Uh, is not something that's suitable for them and they're happy to do the extra time. Mm. And in this case, obviously, um, the judge didn't take into account his, uh, his client's wishes. Um, do you think that's fair to discount them completely or is it, as always, you think in that case it would just be a balancing act of, well, you know, it, the ultimate decision is mine, not yours? Well, it was an interesting cast, wasn't it, in that case? Both the prosecutor yep. and the defence lawyer are now uh, senior judges of the district court themselves. Colleagues, yes. And and uh, they, um, they their submissions are only that. The judge is uh, sworn to uh, administer the matter according to law and if... Uh, if uh, it appears to him that a decision uh, as to ultimate release of the person is best made by someone further down the track, then that's what they're going to do. Mm. Um, 
And I think in the back of their mind is always that decision of the High Court in Mitchell where uh, that Greenwich murder we were talking about. Mm-hmm. They said, look, the decision as to whether he should get out ever is probably a decision for someone in another generation to us. Mm. And when it comes to um, post-sentence monitoring and and, and restrictions, as you've talked about. In the past, you've pointed out that serious drug offenders, those major type dealers and killers, they don't have anything like that scrutiny when, when they get released or they or they didn't used to. Um, does that speak to the, the what I'll call the politics of pedophilia, that there is nothing to lose when politicians, you know, um, you know take on that particular um, set of offending? Well, that's right. I mean, uh, there is in the community, in the public psyche, any time a, a bait noir or a, you know a black beast of of contention, and the, the politicians hone in on that for political capital. And it was uh, obviously uh, pedophiles and sex offenders at one stage, and they just let all the other really, really dangerous people <laughs> not be subject to that regime at all. But I think that's sort of closed now, um, and they and they've knocked that off. But, you know, I think there was perhaps a, a misguided thought in the community that uh, that people can really uh, rehabilitate from most crimes other than if you're a pedophile. There's no coming back from that. You either are or you aren't and you're yeah. incorrigible. I don't believe that. I've seen people rehabilitate and, and toe the line after they are released and they live uh, comfortably in the community uh, very quietly and never reoffend, uh, irrespective of what the crime is. I don't think you can say as a blanket rule that pedophiles never, ever rehabilitate and always constitute a danger to the public. Well, in the case of Stuart Gorham, I don't think that is the case because even after that 14-and-a-half-year sentence, he wasn't quite done. On remand, in protective custody at Hakea Prison, he befriended a younger, weaker prisoner, isolated him in a cell and sexually assaulted him, which earned him another four years on top and a possible release date of February last year. As promised by Ms Barbara Gallo more than a decade ago, the DPP were on the steps of the court months before that date loomed, armed with an application to keep Stuart Gorham inside. Through that process, the state's Supreme Court is first asked to determine whether a significant risk exists to the community if the prison doors are opened. And then an interim order can be put in place until a full hearing can happen. At that full hearing, reports from prison authorities, psychologists, psychiatrists, community corrections officers and others are all considered before a judge makes a call. Detention or supervision, in or out. If it is out, how long is the supervision and on what conditions? And if it is in, then we'll see you again in a couple of years. It is through that process in 2022 and again in the last few weeks that the truest insight into the psyche of Stuart Gorham has been revealed. And to be honest, it is terrifying. And not just because of what he's done and why, but what he openly admits he intends to do if he is ever released. Most of that insight comes from reports from Dr. Gosia Wanaroska, a forensic psychologist who specialises in assessing WA's worst offenders. These insights from her came from a report she wrote just three months ago. Gorham, she said, was pleasant, 
cooperative, relaxed. And in this mood, he told her that he hated adult white males, that he would have no problem with inflicting pain, raping or killing another person, and was closer to doing that in his estimation than last year. And if he ever gets out of prison, he told the doctor how he believed that day would play out. He will look for a victim within minutes of being released from prison, she relayed. He would hide in a prison car park, waiting for the first opportunity to attack a vulnerable male walking to his car. This could be a prison officer or member of the general public. He stated he would attack the person from behind and bash his head on the concrete. He stated that once the victim was subdued, he would ainly rape the victim, and if he had sufficient time, he would then kill the victim. He stated he would then wait for police to shoot him during the confrontation. In Gorham's own words, I wouldn't even make it to the gate before someone is dead. Tom, uh, some of the decisions judges have to make on these uh, dangerous uh, offenders uh, are difficult because in the back of their mind, they must know, um, on one hand, the implications of potential reoffending, uh, on on the other, um, keeping someone in prison who, who could be on, on their way to redemption. Uh, this one, though, Stuart Gorham, that must have been one of the easy ones when uh, when you hear that. You'd think so. I mean, <laughs> he he's a category on his own, yeah. and uh, I don't think uh, that there's anything marginal about his case. A lot of these decisions that come before the courts are marginal, um, and sometimes you think, oh, the judge has obviously made a wrong decision there. Like that guy's like Pendragon, remember him? Mm-hmm. And when, when he was uh, released, I mean, everyone was saying it'll last 10 minutes. Last, but three years later, he's still out. Mm-hmm. No offences. So sometimes they surprise you. And uh, I think that uh, the decisions are justified. Sometimes they're not. And, and judges end up with egg on their face. Mm-hmm. That's why they're very cautious about these things. Yep. But I, I don't think judge would need to be very cautious to uh, release uh, you know, this bloke, Gorham. But, uh... And the decisions, I mean, they obviously, uh, as judges do most of their working life, they hold a person's freedom in their hands. Uh, but in these cases, in, in dangerous offender cases, the, that's after they've served their time. So keeping someone in, in, in inside after they've served their time, that, that's, that must be a judicial pressure all of its own, I would think. Well, it is because uh, a judge uh, arrives at a sentence and the accused works out whether he wants to appeal against that. If it's too long, he wants to take it to a superior court. The prosecution also have a right of appeal. If they think it's too short, they take it to uh, a superior court. And ultimately, we end up with a sentence that suits everyone according to law. And you do that sentence and then there's an application waiting for you saying, well, hold on, we're going to have another look at this. Mm. Puts you in a position of double jeopardy, really, and I think you know, that's the sort of, sort of thing that uh, has been looked at in a number of cases, of which you're no doubt aware. Yeah. So it was Justice Anthony Derrick that had to make the decision on Gorham, and as I said, he made the decision that most people would. He needs to stay locked up. In keeping him locked up, Justice Derrick noted that uh, Gorham was a sexually deviant sadist with psychopathic and narcissistic traits who had refused any treatment for many years. 
of his threats to murder on the steps of Casarina Prison. Justice Derrick stated he did not doubt the genuineness of his expressions of intention. And he urged the prison to keep the closest possible eye on Gorham because he will likely never see the outside world again. Not to further punish him, but to protect the rest of us from him. Which is where the High Court comes in. In September last year, WA's dangerous offender laws, as they now are, after being expanded by Parliament, were challenged as unconstitutional before the country's highest judges. The appellant in that case was a man called Peter Garlett, who was not a killer or a rapist, but an armed robber. He fell, or that his offences fell under those expanded dangerous offender laws, and he was deemed by WA's courts dangerous enough to keep inside. But that was appealed to the High Court as a breach of his human and civil rights. It was a challenge which the judges of the High Court ultimately knocked back because they ruled that the Act was designed to protect the community and therefore did not constitute punishment. But not all those High Court judges agreed. Justice Stephen Gagler, in his dissenting judgment, wrote that if robbery is sufficient to justify empowering a court to order preemptive detention in custody, it needs to be asked what offence is not. Justice Gagler would have ruled WA's high-risk serious offender laws were unconstitutional, which would have meant one prisoner, Peter Garlett, deemed by WA courts to be too dangerous to be released, would have been let out. And potentially many more after him. Sound familiar? Justice Gagler is now the High Court's Chief Justice, and it was he who a month ago ruled that the indefinite immigration detention of some serious criminals, and some not so serious, was unconstitutional, and so 140 of those have been released. He ruled, and all his other judges agreed, that because those immigration detention laws were not designed to protect, but to punish, then they should be overruled. And we've all seen the firestorm that has raged since. Tom, what did you make of that High Court decision and the political fallout that's that's come after it? Well, I think uh, the most recent one uh, was decided 6-0 um, mm. against the government because... Yeah. It involved constitutional issues, and uh, there were straight constitutional issues. The WA Parliament is at uh, greater liberty to make those kind of laws uh, because they're not bound by the strictures of the Constitution. I won't go into exactly what they are, but uh, they do say that only courts can can inflict uh, punishment and uh, that politicians can't. Mm -hmm. So I think that uh, the way that the regime was structured in relation to... uh, visa applicants who are effectively stateless and yep. that there was nowhere they could go and had to be detained indefinitely was unconstitutional. So that's where that one went and that's why it went that way. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> I think that the uh, the storm, as you, you've called it, uh, is really uh, being overdone. 
Uh, there's 140 odd people being released into the community. Some are not serious offenders at all. Mm-hmm. They're just they're just people who've got nowhere to go. These are not people who, uh, in the recent history, really have uh, have done anything that's gone unpunished. I mean, they've done their time. They're just being trying to find somewhere to send them. So. Yep. To have 140 on the street sounds a lot, yeah. but when you go back, you think, I can think in WA alone, there's probably 50 uh, paroled or murderers who've done their time who are walking the streets. They could be they could be living next door to you and you'd never know. That hasn't caused huge public insurrection. There's probably uh, a couple of thousand child rapists uh, out there on the streets in mm-hmm. Western Australia mm-hmm. alone uh, who uh, have, have been released from prison, know who are about that. Uh, and so it goes, armed robbers, drug dealers, everything like that. As I said, with a few exceptions, people like Gorham might be that, uh, they all get out one day. Yeah. They all get out one day, um, other than murder. And, uh, you know, the fact that there's 140 more of them Australia-wide out there doesn't cause me any any you know, cause for concern yeah. because uh, we're doing it every day. If you look at the figures, I'm just talking Western Australia, if you looked at Australia-wide, there would be hundreds of murderers out there walking the street mm-hmm. who have been paroled or done their full time. There would be tens of thousands of sex offenders, child sex offenders, walking the streets. I don't think 140 more people, not all of whom, whom are serious offenders, is, is going to uh, augment that to any alarming uh, alarming number at all. So mm-hmm. I think we just need to sit back, take a breath, uh, have a good lie down and just uh, take it easy. <laughs> and I mentioned the politics of pedophilia earlier. I mean, the opposition in this case have obviously played their, their trump card and one, one that the, the opposition leader has, has been playing for most of his political career is the politics of fear. If you if you tell people that they're, you know, they're going to be... Uh, you know, they're going to be mown down in the street or kidnapped or, you know, whatever. Um, you know, a lot of people sit up and listen and then, you know, you've got the figures and you've got people reoffending. I mean, it's, as you, as you say, the, the reality of it is probably nowhere near as serious as, as the, the headlines will suggest. But when you've got rhetoric coming out of Canberra about that, then um, it, it, it's, it's hard to then not report on, on that as well. Well, it is. I mean, but uh, the reality of it is, is that it has not, to any significant extent, increased the degree of uh, of uh, lack of safety that already exists in the community. Sure, there's some allegations that some of them are pre-offended. None of those have been proved yet. But even if they were, I mean, compared to what's going through the courts every day, mm-hmm. the sort of insurrection and uh, level of assaults, drugs and the sort of things that these people are said to have committed, compared to what people who aren't refugees and who aren't released detainees are committing every day relentlessly mm-hmm. and remorselessly, uh, it's, it's of no cause for you know, concern at all. And, and the, you're right, it's the politics of fear. Every single member of the opposition, you know, Michaela Cash and that guy Dan T, and they're coming to say, the government's under a duty to keep us safe, we need to be kept safe. Well, we're no less safe than we are on a daily basis walking the streets yeah. with the people who aren't detainees. Yeah. And what worries me when stuff like this happens is that then laws are drafted on the back of that fear or that uh, um, that confected um, outrage um, that 
could then obviously there's no, there's no way you can tell me that the Labour Party had all this ready to go, and in four weeks they've just you know fine tuned these new laws that are, were rammed through the Senate this week, um, that basically say uh, some of those the more serious offenders, those who committed I think it's committed crimes that had a maximum of seven years, we can re-detain you now. I mean, surely they're they're now going to be challenged as well. Those those new laws, you would think. I think that's right, and. Uh uh, but I think it's mainly the terrorist offenders who are who are in jeopardy of going back mm-hmm. in. Uh, you know, the vast majority of those people who've been let out won't be affected by these new laws. The vast majority yeah. of them, and this is just a knee-jerk reaction. And as you say, um, laws that are fashioned on the back of a single decision, a single incident, uh, are useless, and they're just uh, political capital. I remember a few years ago there was a drunk driving law called Jess's Law brought in and said, mm-hmm. "Oh, you know, because a poor girl got." hit by a drink driver, and then they said, well, if someone's drunk, they're going to be deemed to be this, and we call it Jess's Law. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been used once in the last 20 years. Yep. I mean, it's a rarity. It's just political capital. Mm. Yeah. Well, thanks, Tom. Again, um, always interesting uh, and insightful to chat to you, and we probably won't do that before the uh, festivities uh, descend upon us. So uh, thanks for your time this year. Um, Have a great uh, break and hopefully we'll speak to you in the new year. Well, I'm sure I'll speak to you uh, in the near future anyway. It probably won't be recorded, but... uh... (laughs) I hope hope not. I hope that that one we can can keep to ourselves. Okay, mate. I'll see you soon. Cheers. And thank you all again for joining us on Court in the Act. If you've got any questions or cases you want explored, obviously, please email us at courtintheact at wanews.com.au. And remember, if you want to know what's going on in court, don't get caught short. Get caught in the act instead. See you next time. <laughs>